Welcome to We Are Just Christians. We appreciate you tuning in today to the show. Thankful that you can be with us here on We Are Just Christians. We're on for another next hour. We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show. And so in just a moment, I'll be giving you the call-in number and the way to contact the show today. Hope you can join us for that and participate in the show. It always makes it better. Uh, my name is Mike Schmidt, and we're, I'm the host of the show, along with Gary Jones. How are you, Gary? Doing fine this morning, Mike. We're, we're glad we can be with you. I'm the minister and one of the elders here at the Church of Christ on Savannah Boulevard, and Gary is the other elder. We've been bringing you this show for several years now on WPSL with the idea of talking to the people in Port St. Lucie about being just a Christian and not part of some man-made denomination, getting past the traditions and creeds of men, and simply looking at the Bible plainly and simply for what it says. And we believe people can do that. I think that there's a lot of interest in that out there. Hope that you're one of those people that wants to get past some of that and just go back to the Scriptures as the way to live, both in the church and then as individuals as we are Christians day to day. So that's what the show is about. We talk about just about anything that's out there, both cultural and and, and biblical, kind of link the two together. So let me give you the number so you can join the conversation. The, the number here in Port St. Lucie is 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the number. It's the usual call-in number for WPSL. And then let me give you a couple of other ways to get a hold of this. You can text the show. We try to look at text. Sometimes we can answer them while we're on the air. Two text numbers, one's mine, one's Gary's. My number is 772-260-6120, 772-260-6120. And Gary's number is 772-260-6220, So you can text us uh, during the show, or you can text us, of course, during the week. We don't mind that at all. We, we love to communicate with our listeners. And you can ask us or tell us anything that's on your mind, uh, and we'll try to include it in the show. We'll try to work work around so we can get that in the show and, and respond to you in some way. Uh, other times, you may just want a private response, and we're glad to do that, too. So those are the numbers, 772-340-1590 is the call-in number. Two text numbers, 672-260-6120 or 6220. And we'd be glad to hear from you. Now, we say this every time, Gary, but I think it bears repeating because we probably have some new listeners. Well, we want to make sure you get the point if you are a listener that this is not about arguing with you. If you want to disagree with us and you can do so, we, I know that that's technically arguing. But by arguing, I'm using it more in the common sense of just getting mean with each other and bickering back and forth. We don't have any real interest in that. We don't mind disagreement. Uh, that's fine, but, well, that's but we're not going. We're going to give you the last word, and we're not going. We're not going to try to embarrass you on the air or anything like that. In, in our society today, to disagree with someone is to hate them, and that, right? That's certainly not what what we're about. We will not view you as a hater if you disagree with us. In fact, we have people that call and disagree, and uh, we're, we're, we'll try to respond to that on the air. And we we'll hope that you'll bring your best and consider the things we have to say too. 
and we'll try to consider the things you have to say about whatever subject is on your mind. So if something's been bothering you about religion, maybe you're not even a believer, and you want to talk about that, if you'd like to you know, lay out your reasons why you don't believe in Christ or why you hate churches, that's fine with us. Come on, come on the air with us. If you have something that's been puzzling you about the Bible or something you've heard, perhaps you have something in your life, a, a, a moral situation you'd like to talk about, get some advice on. We'll try to always point you to the Scriptures. We're gonna, whatever subject is, we're going to try to give you some Bible verses or Scriptures to look at, to read, to consider. Then you can make up your own mind about that because we're going to point you back to the Bible for the answer as best we can. So that's the, that's the way the show works. We always come prepared to talk about a couple things. Uh, it, uh, but if you want to call, you're certainly welcome to do so. You can interrupt us and change the subject. We don't care one bit. Okay, Gary, you said you had something for us today you wanted to talk about. Well, we'll start there. Okay, uh, Mike, I guess Friday night you and I were in a discussion with some folks uh, around uh, some of the uh, works of uh, C.S. Lewis. And one of the yes. uh, things that we discussed was the aspects of humility and sometimes how Satan actually tries to make humility uh, an advantage to him. A point of pride, right? Uh, a point of, <laughs> make, make humility a point of pride. Yeah. And so um, I put together some aspects of humility. Now, these are not all the aspects of humility. I want to say that at the beginning. But some aspects of humility that maybe we hadn't thought about before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm going to read a definition here by a guy by the name of Douglas Wilson that I think is a good one. but not Doug- Douglas Wilson is a, a fairly <coughs> prominent uh, Calvinist writer. Evang- uh, okay. He's kind of an evangelical. Yeah. He's, he's a Calvinist writer. He's writes very prolifically. And even though we have some profound disagreements, I like the way he thinks in general, and he has a lot of good things to say. Well, he, he, he wrote this definition of humility, and I thought it was a good starting point. Uh-huh. He says, so real humility hears the words of God and submits to them. Humility hears the word of God and does it. Arrogance either substitutes an alternative word or denies the reality of words altogether. And if it doesn't, and if it does that, it remains arrogance, no matter how much it postures or preens as humility. And I think he says when he says substitutes an alternative word and denies the reality of words, he's talking about scripture. Yes, yeah, so what, what God says. They, they, God and that's says. this is the typical way that uh, uh, certain kinds of thought goes. They'll take God's word and turn it in, and then turn it on its head, head. trying to figure out a way that doesn't really mean what it says. And that, and they call the, and they do so usually with such great, soft, kind words of humility. And he says that's not really humility. That's not really humility. No. And, Speaking and I, in a low voice, and saying bad things about yourself, is not humility. Uh, and and so we we talked a little bit about this Friday night, and and I think it's it's worth looking at. One of the scriptures that I first turned to this this is one that I thought about at the time. Uh, if you take your concordance and look up the word humble or humility or thing, you're going to find a lot of scriptures that are very similar to this. It's Isaiah 57:15. He says, "For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones." Now. 
the overall idea of that passage, Mike, I think is if you want to live with God, which is, I think, what we all want to do, he inhabits the high and lofty places with these people who have a contrite and humbly, humble spirit. So what does that mean? Uh, one of the things that I came up was how many people actually understand the definition of contrite, you think, Mike? That was one of the first yeah. things I looked up. That, that's not... That's, That's not, not a, a common word, word is it? That we normally use. <clears throat> and actually, I went to um, uh, one of the interlinears, and this is one of those places where I have a pet peeve about dictionaries, and it uses contrite to define contrite. Oh, yeah, that's, that's not a real definition, is it? Right. So I went to Webster's, and it says contrite, definition of contrite, feeling or showing sorrow and remorse for a sin or shortcoming. And I think that's probably pretty close to it. Some of them even say uh, the feeling of wanting to make amends, the feeling to want to correct a wrong, uh, so as a, as a secondary definition. But feeling or showing sorrow and remorse for sin or shortcoming, I think, is the primary idea behind it. Yeah. And uh, so when we do that, it, it made me think of another passage uh, in the Beatitudes that I think is often misunderstood in Matthew 5, 3, and 4, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. I think that is the humble. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, mourn over what? Taking my key from contrite, it might be that they mourn over sin. And I think that's one of the things that we kind of look into. I, I sort of started following this chain of thought in scriptures, use, using a concordance again just putting in some of the words that I came up with and looking for mourning and mourning. And Micah 1, 7, and 9 kind of stood out in my mind. It said all, all her carved images, ta- this is talking about Israel. Israel is being judged, and this is the context of this passage is there's going to be a judgment, and it's going to be bad, and it's going to be for Israel. And Micah is saying, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with fire. All her idols will lay desolate, for she gathered gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of the harlot. Mourning for Israel and Judah, therefore I will wail and howl, and I will go strip naked. I will make a wailing for the jackals, and a mourning for the ostriches, for her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah for it has come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So he's talking, all these bad things are going to come. And it made me think about, believe it or not, Mike, I thought about an old John Wayne movie. Have you ever watched oh, it, Legend, yeah. Legend of the Lost? I have. I, I did, I'm sure, when I was younger, but I don't remember the, the Well, movie. there's a scene in there where this guy is, uh, they're carrying a, a dead person to be buried, and he has hired mourners. And they're following the procession, yeah. and they're wailing. I, I built that into the funeral costs because Judy's <laughs> going to have to hire those for me. Pretty sure somebody pay somebody to come and mourn. But anyway. but basically, this is kind of like uh, somebody wailing and mourning for somebody who's dead. And in this case, it's Judah and, and uh, Jerusalem, and they're dead in sin. And basically. That leads me to another one that I thought was very, very interesting. In Ezekiel 9, he talks about a judgment again. In Ezekiel 9, and verse 4, and there's a judgment sent out there. And he said, uh, And he called to the man clothed with the linen who, 
who had the writer's inkhorn at his side, and the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. So basically he sends out somebody to kill, and he says don't kill anybody with the mark. So those people who who are saved in this judgment are the people who sigh and cry or mourn over the sin that's in the city. Well, being able to mourn over sin, when you analyze or break it down, it requires very definitely the ability to, to understand that sin exists, which a lot of people in our society don't, and then to and then to see that who's committed the sin, whether it's you or somebody else, to recognize that that sin is an affront to God, and then to feel personally responsible for that. There's a lot of there's a lot in the idea of exactly. being contrite, or it's it's not just it's not a feeling. Uh, one of our texter John says humility is when you stop feeling sorry you got caught, and be and being sorry for what you did, and that's the that's where a lot of us are. We, we're sorry that it turned out this way because we got caught or because we don't like the consequences. But that's not the mourning over sin that he's talking about here at all. No, as a matter of fact, I think the mourning over sin he's talking about here, we find actually something good coming from it in 2 Corinthians 7, where he says now in verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you were sorry, that you were sorry, led to repentance, for you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation there's the benefit in it right but the sorrow of the world produces death the sorrow of the world that, that, and that's the idea the of i'm sorry i got, I got caught i'm sorry you i'm embarrassed i'm sorry that i'm gonna to have to pay the price and go to jail or whatever it may be rather than sorry that someone was hurt and you hurt god you know that's so there's a big difference and it takes humility to really achieve one and, well, and they go together uh, they, they go together they yes go together. they go together and so forth yeah, that's um, and that's something that oftentimes people definitely forget. Well, Gary, it's, you mentioned something uh, a minute ago that made me think of this uh, parable that Jesus told, and it goes back to what I think Douglas Wilson said in the beginning, what you quoted. Jesus says in Matthew twenty one twenty eight, "What do you think?" But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, go, "Son, go work today in my vineyard." But he answered and said, I will not. But afterward regretted it and went. Then he came to the second son and, like, and he said likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said, I said, said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him, and when you saw it, you did, you did not afterward relent and believe him. So he's saying that a lot of people say, I go to God, I'll do it. But in the end, they don't. And there are some who at first may resist, but then they regret it. The prodigal son. And say, I will go. And, and it's better to be in that group of people that may be a little more stubborn at times at first but but the the first, the first guy that said first I will not go, what I think the key about him is is he thought it through even when after he said I won't go, he thought this through afterward and realized that's not the right response. Right. 
I, I will, I regret it, I will go. And so people, people that are willing to think through what they've said and done, think about it, and then change their mind, that's the very definition of humility. Yes. The one who says, I, I go, he's very proud of how obedient and great, a great Christian he is, but he never really does what God says. He does what he wants to do. That's what Wilson's talking about when he says, you know, they have all this preening going on. They preen and they posture, you know, and he they call themselves re- humble. And in reality, that's arrogance. And it's arrogance. And that's the son who said, I'll go, but they would not go. So we would get all, oh, he's so religious. He, he loves God. He says all these religious things. The one who is truly humble is the one who actually goes, even, even if he resisted, and thought he thought it through and then went. We have this great capacity as humans that animals do not have, and that's to consider our actions and re- reconsider our actions, think back through them. And, and uh, some people are willing to do that, but, you know, this is the painful part of life. This is the part of life that happens at 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, when you wake up right. and you can't go back to sleep, and then all those things come to you. This is where it makes you human. Well, that's why I want to go back to Matthew 5 for just a minute in verse 4. It says, blessed are those who mourn. So where does the blessing come from? The blessing comes from mourning over things that we've done wrong and turning to repentance. That's the blessing. That's what he's talking about there. So the next time you read the Beatitudes and say, blessed are those who mourn, think about what kind of mourning he's talking about. That's one of the things that comes to that. You know, this idea that that it's beneficial for us to mourn even goes back to Ecclesiastes 7, Verses 2 and 4, I'll, I'll leave that for our listeners to read, but he says better to go to the house of mourning. You know why? Because it makes us think. It makes us consider the things that we've done, uh, just like what you said. And, and I think that's where it comes from. Uh, it makes some people think. It makes some Other people. Other people begin the process. It's very painful, and they turn away. Right. Yeah, yeah. But... Uh, you know, there, there's another one here that about humble and justice that I also wanted to consider, and that's Psalm 25, because this is a different aspect. It goes along exactly with what we're talking about here. What do you do when you really mourn over sin or consider the things you've done? You begin to under may have understanding and and do other things. He says in Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Basically, if you're really humble when it comes to the Lord, what does this imply to you? And then I I think you need to ask a question about about this passage what does that imply about us and our humility toward the Lord and Mike I think it implies to us that we need to be able to learn from God and that takes humility to learn from anyone takes humility yes to learn from anyone takes humility we so the humble person also is willing to learn from God I have this as you know I have this odd hobby of exhibition poultry Show, show birds and um, one thing I've learned in that and one thing I've learned by observation of other people in this hobby you have people who are PhDs doctors veterinarians people like that in this hobby 
uh, who are advanced horticulturalists and other things like that to get involved in showing poultry on a high level because it takes artistic and intellectual skill. But you also got a lot of people with that, with that many teeth who live at, who, 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 you know, drive around in dirty old vans who do just as well in this hobby. And what you have to learn, one of the things that some people can't get is you can learn something from everybody if you're humble. You can learn. But some people resist learning unless the learning is coming from someone who they already admire or is coming from some someone who is better than them as in their own yeah, mind. And they resist the learning. It's hard for someone. So who, they're not humble. <laughs> I think it's hard for someone who is well-trained in any discipline, whether it be the Bible or whether it be engineering or whether it be horticulture or whatever it is, to learn from people that they don't respect. That's hard. Well, the humble man can respect a lot more people than the proud man. Is that right? Yes. A lot more kinds of people and a lot more kinds of things. And and often that person who is well-trained will not consider even the things that are said by others. Right. And that's, that's, that's another aspect of humility is being able to do that. Well, see, I find this in being a preacher that if I were to tell someone, oh, I have, a, I have a degree in this or that, I have this training, they would listen to what I said. And yet I can say the same exact thing to them and tell them I'm a preacher for a small church in Port St. Lucie, and they will disregard it. So where is that humility? No, it's a form of pride. Pride says I will only learn in, way, in ways. Well, look, it's Naaman, the example that you cite so often. Yes. Naaman, the great general from Syria who had leprosy, didn't like the way the prophet told him to go and be healed. And so he disregarded at, at first the prophet's word. And a humble servant came to him and said, a servant girl said, well, if he told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? And now, now then the test of character came at that point. She said, wouldn't you have done it if he told you some great thing? And we find out immediately that Naaman, even though he was a Syrian, and at first seemed proud, really wasn't because he learned from a servant girl. Because that goes back to our, really, our right. original definition of humility. He did what God said right. and what he was told. Uh, you know, and, and you see that character, I think, in Naaman. In the, in, uh, you knew that was ability was in him from the start of the story. How did you know that, Mike? Because his servants cared for him. Yeah, they, they cared about him enough to talk to him about it. You so know, it shows he was a good man to start yeah, with. Yeah, an overbearing and, and, and harsh man would not receive that kind of, of, of attention from his servants. From his servants, right. They would be, you know, glad he was dying. So, uh, so basically we see that character. Now, I'm going to go through a little bit of the things here that I think let us know a little bit more about the character. In Second Peter one and beginning in verse two he says grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of god and of jesus our lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by the glory and by glory and virtue by which have been given to you exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. 
Now, I don't want to stop reading there. I want to keep going. And I'm going to go to uh, Philippians 2 and verse 9. And he says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any effort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. There is, there is explained within those passages character of humble humility that helps us to obey what God says. I believe those things, if we read those things and try to do those things, they're also very difficult things to do in a lot of cases. He says, let each of you esteem others better than themselves. That's hard to do. That's what I'm getting at about learning from, learning from everybody what you can learn from them and not thinking yourself better than others. And um, that, that's, a, that's a big thing in human societies, always has been. Jesus was the kind of person who could talk to Herod and Pilate eye to eye, and they understood he was a man right. not to be dealt with lightly. And he could also talk to beggars and lepers, the lowest of society. And blind men. And blind men, or looking them straight in the face. And they, he could speak to both because there was a basic humility in his character. And he respected all of them. And that's what humble people do in that case. You know, Gary, one of our textures here, John has taken us in a different direction in a couple of texts if you want to go there for a minute. Well, before you do that, go ahead. I just right. want to finish a comment about Jesus from that passage in Philippians. It says, taking the form of a bondservant, this is later on in verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What was the result of his humility? His humility, he became obedient to the point of death, even the cross, and that death benefited us. It was not for his benefit, it was for our benefit. Right, exactly right. Well, um, what the texture was kind of getting at here is that uh, some people, he says, it takes humility to admit you're wrong and saying sorry as soon as possible can smooth the situation over better than you know. And I put, and meaning it when you say you're sorry, right? Yes. And, that, and that's the problem because some people say they're sorry way too easily. I'm sorry without you thinking had the problem it. with it, right. not I had the problem with and, it. And they say it so quickly that I, it's hard to really – you. You need to be called out on that because uh, if it's a sesshi or something serious, you need to. When someone just immediately falls on their sword, I think, eh, they don't think they really understand what they did. And, and you're going to find then that what they're doing is trying to deflect any close examination. They don't want you to get any closer, so they're going to deflect it by saying they're sorry. And they don't want to do any true repentance. Repentance involves, I, I think I'm right about, it involves three things. It involves regret. Uh, uh, um, uh, now what the restitution and um, 
I put these down here somewhere. Sometimes restitution is not possible. Well, or yes, even practical, it should be but, as soon as it but can it be. But it should be something considered. Right. Uh, restitution, regret, and repair. I think yeah. true repentance involves at least those three things. We need to repair the damage we've done, if possible. Some of that might be included under restitution, that is, taking care of the wrong that we've done if we need to pay somebody back or do something in that. And then uh, regretting that situation in a true sense of how, well, repentance involves understanding how what you did affected the other person. A proud person can't ever see that, how that what they did affected the other person. All they can see it as how it affects them now that they've done this wrong thing. And so they can see their embarrassment, their shame, uh, but they can't see the hurt they did the other person. And it comes out in these phony apologies you see on TV and and other people giving these half phony apologies. They're not really sorry about what they did. They don't really see how it impacts other people. So a humble man, once again, a humble man is looking at things not from the standpoint of himself, but from its impact on other people, what he does and says. He's not, as C.S. Lewis said, the famous quote just talked about the other night, Gary, that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less, meaning that you're not folk, you're not the center of everything all the time. You look at it from the standpoint of how what's happening is impacting others, both good and neg- poorly, not how you're having to, do this or that. And some people can never get past that because they have pride. Pride often masquerades, though, as a false humility, especially in religion. It masquerades and people, oh, I'm such a terrible sinner. Or they'll say, well, I know I do things wrong every day. You know, when somebody tells me, yeah, I know I sin every day, you know what I say to them, Gary? You need to stop. Well, yeah. <laughs> can, can you name some of these? Have you, have you tried to stop them? And they look at you kind of funny. When I ask them to name a couple things that they sin about every day. I said, well, can you name any of these sins you commit every day? And you get this blank stare. And this, please don't do that to me. That's what they <laughs> kind of say. Well, to go around saying, oh, I sin every day cavalierly, that's a shocking thing to me, especially when you can't even name one of them. What it tells me is they're thinking that just saying that they're a sinner makes them a good person or makes them a humble person. No, a humble person would look at that and say, if I sin every day, you know, I need to figure out what these things are and stop doing them and and ask somebody to help me stop doing these particular things rather than just go around talking, oh, I'm so religious because I'm so humble. I I sin every day. I'm such a bad person. That doesn't make you a good person. doesn't even make you a religious person. It almost makes you proud, proud that you're a sinner. Well, it makes you also pride in your religion. I'm proud that I'm a worse sinner than you. You you quoted a parable earlier about uh, the father who asked the son to go to the fields and work i was thinking of another one okay i was thinking of luke 18 he says also he spoke this parable of some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others he says two men went up to the temple to pray one a pharisee and the other a tax collector the pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself god i thank you that i am not like other men extortioners unjust adulterers or even as this tax collector I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, 
but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There's another one of those pride in religion, but I want the last line is the one I want to think more about. If you exalt yourself, God says you will be humbled. And I'm afraid that's going to be on the judgment day. Mm-hmm. And he says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's also going to be on the judgment day. Mm-hmm. And and if you read that, you know, uh, he who exalts himself, that idea, if you take that through the scriptures, Mike, do you realize how many times that's written? Yes. It doesn't. It's over and over again, yes. Over and over again. That idea. So James in 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's what you were talking about. You've got to recognize what it is and say, Okay, if I'm doing these things, I've got to stop. Right. It's easy to talk about what great, what great sinners we are, and having said that, have no real interest in finding out exactly what that is. We just like to talk about how bad we are every day. I saw this years ago, especially in younger people who were trying to be more devout and more religious, and it it turns into kind of a, a warped kind of self-absorption and and a false humility of people who are really all about looking inwardly all the time at themselves and how they feel, so they can never actually get beyond that to actually do to doing something that involves another person's welfare, not for themselves. Even when they do well toward others, they're only doing it so that they can feel better about themselves, which, which is entirely missing the point in the end. The truth is, sometimes doing better to, toward others is going to hurt you. You know, one of my favorite sayings, Gary, no good deed goes unpunished, right? right? So uh, that's how that goes. And... Uh, so it's like the other, I got on the elevator the other day, fellow, he's heard me coming and he kind of waited for me to get there. I knew he was in a hurry. I get in the elevator, never guess I had to get off the floor before his. So <laughs> I said, no good deed goes unpunished. You're going to have to wait longer now to help me. <laughs> he laughed. But the, it, it, there it is, you know. Well, I was thinking of Psalm 15. What did he say? Those who dwell in his high and holy hill. Uh, the one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. We have a call. I'm sorry, I did not see that Ken was on the line. Ken, are you there? Oh, good. Sorry. Sorry, Ken. I did not hear the notification come in. Uh, what's on your mind today? Okay. Okay, Ken, I did not catch that. Try that again. Oh, yes, uh uh-huh. Your own experience with religious pride? Yes.
it's a painful experience. Well, how how did the Lord do that to you? I mean, what what experiences came your way that showed you this? Uh-huh. Ah, so he was, he was thinking about the Lord and doing something about it in his own life then, huh? Oh my, oh my. So that caused you to really then evaluate your own self as to whether you were actually better than him, huh? You know, um, those kind of things can cause, apparently that's been a life, cause a lifetime awakening of uh, where we are. And uh, so many people are out, like you say, to prove that they're better than somebody else. And the trouble with that is they don't even know they're doing that and sometimes until it's too late, that, that really their motivation is to show how much better they are than other people. And um, I think that's, I really think that's what was partly driving the Pharisees in Jesus' day. And, and that's why he's, uh, that's why he says to them, uh, tells that parable in Matthew 18, or Luke 18, about the two men that went down to pray. And the Pharisee, who's he focused on to show his righteousness? Himself. Himself and how he compares to other people. Whereas the, man who truly was righteous before God was only focused on how he could be a better person and casting his humility, casting his cares upon God. And so this is the, this was what was wrong with the Pharisees approach to being righteous is it was focused internally on being proud, proud of the righteousness that they had and so forth. Were you going to go, you want to say anything more about that, Ken? Okay. Oh, is that right? Wow. So you were a sole survivor. So that meant you got saved. You were saved, as it were, from that same same problem. Yes. Was he drafted? Okay. So probably what somebody would tell you is you have what they call, would call survivor's guilt. That why him and not me and so forth, in which can be productive or unproductive. Has this stayed, I mean, has this affected your life down through the years or were you able to come to grips with this at some point, this guilt? Yeah. The, the events are probably unrelated. Your brother didn't die because of you, but 
the lesson the lesson still is something that comes to you. You can you can see it for what it is. Help you see your own heart for what it is. Yeah, what it was, I should say. Yes, and 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 a humble person is willing to learn what the lesson that's being shown to them. Uh, whereas a proud person will make an excuse and keep going the way they're going. In this case, it sounds like you learned something. You learned something very valuable from this that altered your life for the better. The point I would make, Mike, is. How many of those lessons involved sorrow? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, we, we tend to learn. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts at us in our sorrows, in our pains. Yeah, that's what it is. But, well, that's, but see, that's, uh, that's one of the points I was, <laughs> I was making with this is humility acts through often by in, in a way when the things we see bring on sorrow uh, and it's it's it educates us in a lot of well ways. this is why God allows pain in the world because uh, the, the, the the humble man will take these things to heart the wicked man never will the proud man never will at least or he won't at first but humble man can take these lessons to heart even when he didn't cause the problem he can see the lesson and learn from that and so that's how God that's how God makes the humble more humble and and the proud more proud because the proud will make excuses for themselves in these problems in these situations well that's one of the things I wanted to think about is sorrow is integrally related with humility often in the too. things that we learn well Jesus was a man of sorrows so uh, yes this that that is interesting that I, and I can see especially as a young person this would induce a lot of a lot of guilt and a lot of um, pain to think that a person that you this person turned out to be much better than you might have imagined and then his death spared you from the same fate that's quite a lesson to learn uh, Okay. Right. And it it probably means a little more deep kind of happiness than we use the word happy today. And and uh, Not in the typical way, that's right, not in the typical way that we, we think of happy, but it's the kind of happiness, well, it, it also carries with it from what I know, Ken, and the way it's expressed there, the word blessed or happy, it's carrying the idea of being blessed by God when this happens to you or when, you're, when these things, when you're in a state of mourning, 
you're, you're actually blessed by God. When you're hungering, that doesn't seem like a blessed state to be in hungering and thirsting. We try to assuage hunger and thirst. But he says, no, you're blessed by God when you do this, and therefore you are happy, or you should put you in a state of happiness to realize this was going, or persecution the same way. No one likes it when it's happening, particularly. But it's indication of, of God's care for you in a lot of ways. So, yes, this is the, uh, this is the problem. We're on C.S. Lewis today, but C.S. Lewis says, if you want to find a religion that will produce what he calls happiness, Christianity is a very poor place to start to find a religion about being happy. Let me see if I can find that quote. <laughs> well, while you're looking for that, let, you let, let me make, have let me make a comment say. here. Because in First Peter 5, uh, beginning in verse 5, he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he who for he cares for you. And there's several things about that. We were talking about this idea of be happy if you mourn or be happy if you're persecuted. What does he say? Be humble, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. What, what's that associated with? To me, that's associated with salvation. Right. And when he says, but he gives grace to the humble, what grace is he talking about? We are saved through grace. Right. He's, he's talking about salvation here. And, and yes. that's what we're looking forward to. And I think we, we, we often do not think about that when we encounter these things, especially if they're a hard task to learn. Right. Well, I, I agree with you, Ken, and, and what you're saying, Gary. I agree with you about happiness or happy in the Beatitudes. Uh, but I'm, I would say that I don't know that our our culture uses the word the same way. When I was in my 30s, a young preacher, my man with a family, I lost in a period of a year about six people that I was very, very close to growing up, not only friends but close relatives. And it really threw me into a state of unhappy, not of of grief. And I was mournful. It, it hurt. It took time to begin to recover from this. And I had, but I had other young Christians tell me how what the fact that I was sad, and the fact that I had a hard time being outwardly joyful, that I had a lack of faith. That if I had faith, I would be happy because being a Christian means that you're always happy. And I rejected that. Uh, I don't think that's true. I think I can be blessed and I can be joyful even in my sorrow I can have joy you see uh, because of faith in Christ so I don't think it's a lack of faith to experience life and from time to time even prepared to time be be uh, mournful even downcast depressed whatever it might we might call it and I here's a here's a section from C.S. Lewis wrote a book called God in the Dock in, in English terminology in England Britain the dock is where you put a witness on the stand and cross-examine him. So he puts God on the this witness is, this stand. This is on trial. God on trial, yes. And so he says he responded to a number of questions 
Lewis did, when asked of him in a kind of forum called a one-man brain trust. One of the questions was, which of the religions of the world gives to its followers the greatest happiness? Now, that's using happiness in a more modern way, not in the way that Ken's using it or it's used by the Hebrews in the word blessed or the Greeks. He says, I have an elderly acquaintance. Lewis responded by saying, I have an elderly acquaintance of about 80 who has lived a life of unbroken selfishness and admiration from the earliest years and is more or less, I regret to say, one of the happiest men I know, even though he's totally selfish. From the moral point of view, it's very difficult. I'm not approaching the question from that angle. As you perhaps know, I haven't always been a Christian, Lewis says. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. That's wine, okay? (laughs) If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Now, what's Lewis saying there? He's saying Christianity will make you do a lot of inward self-searching which can be painful and at times make you unhappy with yourself or even the world because here you try and struggle to do well and others gain advantage. But he says if you want something that's going to make you truly happy and blessed, I'm sure that's what he would recommend, but not the way the world calls it happiness. But Jesus says, I give you joy, not as the world gives joy, but my joy I give unto you. So see how he's... There's a different joy. There's different... That's what Jesus is saying about it. So, yes, the painful experience Ken had in the lessons of a, as a young man actually were a blessing that can make him blessed or happy once you learn the lessons and see them. Did it make you feel good and euphoric? Did it make you feel The answer is no, doesn't. That's the difference between the joy of the gospel and the joy of the world. I think partly. Well, it, it goes back to, and I'm, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to kind of bring to the end the part of my discussion here that I was going to get to is we do not understand the importance of this life. This life is not the most important thing to God. And while it's all we know, it may be the most important thing to us for the moment. But when you stop and think about an eternity with God in being comforted with him and in in the parables and pictures that Jesus presents of that we're not told of all the details but it's certainly it's certainly more comfortable and more much more desirable than the alternative of being without God right Uh, so when we compare an eternity of comfort with God to this maybe 60 to 100 years. Some I was just reading the other day, uh, Kirk Douglas lived to be 103. Uh, we, we've known a member here that was 102 when she died. So this relative life of whatever we have, you know, maybe it's only 40, maybe it's only 35, maybe some people die at 20. This relative few years here compared to an eternity, right. what's important? And what should we consider important? And that's that's the difference, I think, in what Jesus says, his happiness versus ours, or right. versus this world. Right. Well, um, Ken, do you want to add any more to this, or do you want to go back, going to go over uh, something different? Okay.
Well, they were singing, weren't they? I don't know if we sang, they sang sad or happy songs, but <laughs> they were singing, right. And, you know, I think that probably the guards hearing this, the other prisoners hearing this, hearing these men sing, even though it wasn't a pleasant circumstance, they sensed that in that situation there was a kind of peace within these men that they didn't have. And there was a kind of contentment even in spite of the difficult circumstances based upon God's faithfulness and his, their confidence in him that they didn't have. And that's why when the earthquake struck, the regard and the others responded the way they did to these, two, these men, these, these, two, these two prisoners, Paul and Silas. That's a good point. Well, I appreciate your calling, Ken. If you want to add anything else, go ahead. We've got a few minutes left. But uh, Okay, I didn't realize. I think we have another caller, Ken. I'm going to go to them, okay? Uh, go ahead if you're, on the, if, you're, uh, if you're there. I didn't realize you were, on, you were waiting. Go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I uh, I don't use the term. The Bible indicates, I don't know where to start exactly, but I, the Bible indicates that all Christians are saints. There's no special category of Christians that some are saints and some are not. So I don't use the term St. Paul, St. Peter, St. Timothy. The Catholic Church is designated some people as saints other people as just ordinary Christians, but the Bible makes no distinction. The word saint is from the same word as the word holy, and all of us are saints in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's all Christian. All who are in Christ are saints in Christ Jesus, and there's no hierarchy that some are more saintly than others. I think the Catholic Church has used the, some of the measurements, and if you're a Catholic, you can call and correct me. I'm not trying to misrepresent you. They're, they use the the uh, idea of you have to be dead for 400 years, something like that, or dead for a certain period of time. You have to have done certain miracles that can be confirmed and so forth and so on. There's some criteria. Now, the, Mike, pro the problem yeah, with all that is there, there's not anything in the Bible about that process. Yeah, well, let, me, let me quote a passage here. It's from Romans 1, verse 7. Paul says to the Romans, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, call to be saints. Right. All of us are saints. They That's were what, all saints. Exactly. That's who he was writing to. Now, as far as Timothy is concerned, Paul's uh, second journey, I think it was, in the book of Acts, he met a young man in the city of Lystra, or was it Derby? I should have looked this up. Uh, he was preaching in the synagogue there, and it says about this young man, he was well-loved and respected by all the Jews there, all the people, and he, his mother was a Jewess, and his father was a pagan or a, a, a Greek, he wasn't a Christian or a Jew. But all the men there, all the people respected this young man so much, and, Tim, and Paul met him, and Paul saw his qualities, and he asked Timothy, come with me on my journey. So that's how they met, and so this man became Paul's most trusted companion, I think, over time. 
he became he was a younger man that Paul trusted as a bearer of the gospel. Was Timothy an apostle? No, Timothy was not an apostle. He was given a spiritual gift, but he could never pass that gift on to anyone else. Uh, there's a lot in the Bible about Timothy. Paul wrote two letters to Timothy. The books of First, Second Timothy are not written by Timothy. They're written to Timothy by Paul. He calls him, Paul calls him his son in the gospel and so forth. And he, he could count on him, I think, more than any of his other helpers uh, down through his lifetime. He's the one that Paul wanted to see him before he died told him to bring the cloaks and things he needed to him so forth so yes he was not a saint in the sense of some special canonization process but he was paul's trusted companion his fellow labor his son in the gospel and there's a lot said about how to become a preacher and a teacher based on what we know about timothy anything you want to add to that gary well i was just going to quote another passage first okay. corinthians one and two to the church of god which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ, called to be saints with all who are in every place on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Right. Again, we, another reference to all exactly. of them being saints. The, the now, idea, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Referring to them being sanctified. Sa- sanctified, saint, holy, all those words are from the same Greek word in the Greek, agnes, agnes the cognates of that, hognes, which, which means set apart for a particular use. So God is saying, you words were in the world. Now that you've come to me, I've taken you out of the world, set you over here, and now I'm going to, you're mine to use for a particular purpose, to serve me. You're separated. So a saint is someone who is separated. That, that's what the word holy means. It means yes, separated. separated. doesn't mean more righteous than somebody else. Or better than, it means separated. So a holy person, it says, my life belongs to God. I'm going to use my abilities, my physical, spiritual, mental abilities to serve God. I've set those things apart to serve him and not the world or not my own interest. And therefore, that person can be called holy. We probably should do a show on these, this business of clergy and laity and saints sometime, Gary. Maybe we can, yeah. maybe we can work on that. There's a lot of misunderstanding. And I don't call them. You never hear us on this show saying St. Paul said such and such because St. Paul is no more a saint than I'm a saint or you as a Christian are a saint. He was an apostle. He's an apostle. And he's to be respected. He was sent. But That's not above that which is written. Well, Gary, our time is about gone this morning. We appreciate the, those who called in and those who texted. We thank you for that. do want to tell you before we close this morning about uh, a little bit about the Church of Christ here in Port St. Lucia that brings you this program. Uh, we're an undenominational church, a non-denominational, but really more undenominational church in Port St. Lucie, composed of all different kinds of people from all, of all different races and nationalities. We invite you to come and be with us. We believe in just focusing on what the scriptures do and say. And I invite you to come and visit. Take a look. It's different than what you see because it's very simple. We're not basing our teaching or our worship on the traditions of men. And so we invite you to come. 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard here in Port St. Lucie. 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. Or take a look at our website, wearejustchristians.com. We are just Christians.com. So until next week, may God bless you. Open my God.